Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Welcome to episode 60 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined by my co-host Mary, a woman who inexplicably doesn't know the difference between Jenny Wade and Jenny Dell. I am just a guy <laughs> named Weeks. What's going on, Mary? <laughs> Great to <intro> us always. <laughs> I mean, you don't. That's sad, but it's okay. That's okay. Fucker. Jesus. <laughs> okay. Well, that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. How are you? What's going on with you? What's what's the word? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm all set to record oh. about Perryville tonight. How are you doing? We are. I'm doing okay. Is that what we're doing? What, what are we doing tonight? Perryville? Is that what we're, we're doing? doing the actual battle. Last week we did the lead up. and Oh, that's right. We did. Battle. I did. So, so what are we doing today? We're doing Perryville today. Yeah, that's going to be a good one. We'll talk about that. Yeah. That's going to be a good battle. I think it was a good set up last week to set up yeah. this battle because, and I think this was your idea, I'm going to give you credit for, was doing wow. this one episode. I don't, don't get excited. You heard it here first, folks. He gave you me know, credit. Weeks gave me credit. As a wise man, the Millennium Falcon once said, don't get cocky. Okay. <laughs> Kid. But I think it's important to do this in two episodes because it really would slight the battle or slight the approach, the road to Perryville. So, you know, good idea by you. Well done. Well done. Well, thank you. Well, I just thought, you know, like on our Facebook Live that we did not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before, we talked a lot about the importance of the Kentucky campaign and just how it doesn't get discussed a lot and how it's an important thing in the civil war and like you know you have things like antietam and second manassas and south mountain going on around the same uh -huh. time as this as you have battle of richmond which is kind of the first big battle the kentucky campaign but then you have munfordville and all these little things that are on the road to perryville and it it plays into how Bragg and Buell end up at this. It is a little crossroads town like Gettysburg. Uh -huh. But, you know, the Kentucky campaign, like Kentucky, like as we discussed on the last, you know, we talked about this in our episode about Richmond. We talked about it in our episode last week. Lincoln had to have Kentucky. What if I told you, I don't think the Union wins the war if Kentucky goes Confederate. Oh, I would completely agree. What if I, I, told I think you it would that? really I fuck things up. Like, I, I don't think, you know, something like an Antietam would matter. And, you know, you have like the elections in 1862 as well. That could have totally been a complete game changer uh -huh. with that. And it might have even factored into the elections of 1864. But then you have the other border states that might just be like, well, F this, like, we're going to fucking vacate the dance floor too and go with the Confederacy. If Kentucky's going, then so are we. Well, it's needless to say, Kentucky is of utmost importance. The Battle of Perry is the crescendo of the Kentucky campaign. Mm -hmm. So it's equally important. But more important, Mary, is what are you drinking? What am I drinking tonight? I am drinking Off the Grid by Lake of Bays, which is a hazy pale ale. And I chose that because Buell is pretty much off the grid for most of this battle. And I'm drinking it out of my George Henry Thomas mug because Thomas is in this briefly. I'm drinking a beer called Jackie from Treehouse, which is local here. Drinking it out of our ride with the winter mug, which we got. So yes, from the That's awesome John LaRoe of LaRoe Designs. Just a reminder that um, he's got some pretty awesome merch on there, including a Charles Tilden t-shirt and an Oliver Otis mm -hmm. Howard t-shirt. And you can get those designs on mugs as well. So he's been a great supporter cool. of the podcast. So thank you to John LaRoe again. Shout out to him. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So let's talk about Perryville, okay? Mm -hmm. it's, we, we talked before about this. We'll kind of, you know, go back a little bit and kind of tread back to how we ended last week's episode. So October 7th, which is the day before the Battle of Perryville, William Hardeen, his left wing of the Confederate Army, is in Perryville. And, they, yep. you know, they set up those picket lines. They're defending those three roads coming in uh, into the town. They're going to defend a position on Peters Hill, which is one of several undulations in the area. We're going to talk throughout Rolling this Hills. entire battle, Mary. Anywho... Buell is arriving that day. He's going to fall off his horse. Who knows what the hell happens, but he's going to be hurt. He's going to spend most of the 7th and the 8th in a chair with his leg up. 
because he hurt reading his leg. a book apparently is what he he's does. reading a book at the, at the dorsey house who knows what he was reading probably something danielle Steele. <laughs> but what happened is the whole thing is it's communication errors from the get-go so mm-hmm. we mentioned before sometimes battles happen on their own schedules now kentucky it wasn't supposed to happen in Perry village very to your point just very much like gettysburg it just kind of happened that way hardy kind kind of stumbles upon it right and he recognizes the importance of it you know not only does it have six roads leading out of it which gives them a line to retreat on Perryville also offers them a spot to protect their supply train which is behind uh-huh. them but the most important thing about Perryville is the water mm-hmm. it's the h2o and they're in the middle of an extremely heavy drought it's very hot there's not a lot of water everywhere and that's what's going to draw these armies together this is literally a battle that that begins over water mm-hmm. okay so as we talk about this we talked before about how this sets up General Gilbert, who's commanding the, the Corps in the uh, in the Union Army, yeah. he's going to order that 10th Indiana under William Colbaugh, Kyes, and Speed Fry we talked about last mm-hmm. time. And they're going to hit set up a pick a line of Peters Hill, and they're going to bump into that 7th Arkansas, which is right up there with them. This is the night of the 7th, late night of the 7th. Colonel Daniel McCook, Mary, there's two McCooks at this one, Phil Sheridan's division and Gilbert's Corps. He's going to be ordered to occupy that hill and protect the creek in the water they found because they found water. It's like finding gold. Yep. By now, Bragg, he knows what's up and he's going to try to bring his Confederate army together. You're going to end up a situation where the Rebs are going to find themselves the night before this, uh, the night before the battle on the 7th, sitting in Perryville, knowing the next day was going to bring on quite a battle. So the 8th yep. of October, 1862, early in the morning, the Battle of Perryville is going to begin. So mm-hmm. Phil Sheridan's 2nd Corps um, second Division of the Third Corps under Charles Champion Gilbert, one of the best names in the American Civil mm-hmm. War, by the way, Mary. He's going to order Dan McCook's 36th Brigade to move and occupy that Peters Hill and control that water in the area that's called Doctor's Creek. Told him, literally hold your water. That's literally what he told him. <laughs> well, I don't know if he literally told him that, but that was the gist of it. Now, his troops, primarily the 52nd Ohio, 85th, 86th, 125th Illinois. The thing about them, Mary, is they're all green. And they're all experienced. And like we said before, as Kermit has told us, it's not easy being green. No, especially, especially, not, in the, especially not in, in this battle war. when you're you're going up against mm-hmm. some hard fighting troops. The other thing that happens too is like Buell has learned that the Confederates are halted at Perryville. And he had been like, okay, we'll attack on the 8th. But then he decides no, with the 1st and the 2nd Corps being delayed, he decides that he's going to wait till the 9th. As you said, he does send those men in to look at the water so he knows that's happening um so there's really like both sides really don't know what the other side is doing but meanwhile you have hardy who's got he's just limited to three of buckner's brigades so he's got sterling am wood bushrod johnson who's on the right of wood and then general saint john r liddell who's going to have these arkansas brigades that are going to be some of the first ones that are engaged in this early morning skirmishing so they're going to engage at seventh arkansas under colonel david Gillespie. all right and he's in Liddell's brigade that you had just mentioned. They actually, although be green and experienced, they actually do pretty well. They actually take that hill. They actually get it. Now, I mentioned before about Buell. He's chilling back at that Dorsey house about five miles away. We're going to talk a lot about acoustic shadows in this episode mm-hmm. because that's a huge part of this. Because of all the undulations that roll throughout Perryville, he can't hear. And that's this is going to be a repeating thing for him. So when they start, when he hears the battling, the firing, his first instinct is, who the hell's firing? You're wasting powder. He thinks it's Not just them the... practicing. He, he's like, they're practicing. So by sunrise on the 8th, artillery's blasting away, boom, 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 on that rebel positions, primarily guns from the 2nd Minnesota Light Artillery. So they're firing, they're firing. The 5th Arkansas under Lucius Featherstone in uh, Gillespie's 7th Arkansas, they're going to reform. They're going to try to take that hill now. 
right? So this is kind of the beginning of the battle. They're going to try to take that hill. They're going to be pounded by canister fire from guns on Peter's Hill. But you know what? They keep coming. They mm-hmm. keep doing it. Once they get close to the guns, Daniel Cook's infantry, the 85th and 86th Illinois, and that 52nd Ohio we talked about, they're going to rise up and they're going to blast these Arkansas guys from less than 100 yards with a volley. And they're going to stop them in their tracks. They're going to run faster down that hill than the time it takes you to stick a key in the side of a Labatt's can. That's how fast that's going to go, right? So they're going to be coming up that hill to retake that hill. And all of a sudden, they're going to rise up with three infantry regiments and they're going to start firing. And they're going to roll down that hill. So by 10 o'clock in the morning, Braxton Bragg, and we mm-hmm. talked about Braxton Bragg, the commander of the Army of the Mississippi, he's going to finally get there. So there's kind of a, a pretty good battle going on already. Yeah, He's going to arrive in Perryville and set up his headquarters at a place called the Crawford House along a road called the Harrodsburg Road, yep. which we'll talk a lot about. And he's pissed because around 6 a.m., Leonidas Polk had told him that the battle will begin vigorously. But then Polk, being Polk, and we've seen him do this before, he changes his mind and he's like, oh, I'm just going to step in a defensive position, probably sits in a rocking chair like he did at Battle Chickamauga. We are definitely going to be hearing about Polk again later. So Bragg shows up there around 10 a.m. and he's like some level of fucking pissed off, right? He rides from Harrodsville to Perryville to take charge and he's pissed at Polk's battle line because, you know, it's got some gaps in it. It's not properly anchored on the flanks. Bragg is going to assume that the major threat is at the Springfield Pike where the attack had happened earlier at Peter's Hill. He orders his army to realign in a north-south line and attack on Echelon. His plan is to hit them from left, center, right. That's going to be. He's going to right, right, right down the line. We hit yep. echelon attack. You, what, you, what you're hoping for in Gettysburg, people, you think of the long street mm-hmm. assault on the July second. You want to keep hitting, 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 hoping the Union is going to support and create a gap. They're going to break through. By noontime, Leonidas Polk is in his right wing. You mentioned before how how he says how Leonidas Polk is is you know he's set up but he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Bragg wants he wants him to start fighting because he sees troops in his front. Okay. Ultimately, what's going to happen is. Those troops are going to force Bragg to order Cheatham's 1st Division under Polk along uh, along a road called the Chaplin Road to strike what he thinks is the Union left flank, which is going to be a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. Now, on the Union side, Federal Cavalry under a guy named Ebenezer Gay. I know you like talking about him because we have a story for him. He has troopers from guys in Kentucky, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Minnesota. This is interesting because he is sent to go in the woods near the Peters Hill in a place called Bottom Hill to yeah. clear out any Rebs who might be whittling in the woods. That's what he's pretty <laughs> much what he's going to do. Now, Gay is going to get pissed off at this. Ebenezer Gay, the cavalry guy, he's going to get pissed. He's going to refuse to refuse the order unless he gets infantry support. He doesn't know what's in the woods. This, I mean, this probably he's afraid of clowns. clowns. Realistically, probably, clown, probably, probably a was, snake. Right? But the thing that's interesting, he's going to complain to the Corps Commander General Gilbert and say, listen, I'm, I need infantry support I, before I go in there. Now, Gay, as you can imagine, is going to be told, get your ass in the woods, and that's what's going to happen. The mm-hmm. Corps Commander is going to trump him. So Gay and his merry men, see what I did there, Mary, <laughs> he will approach the woods. And as soon as they get there, the thing is, they're going to get into these woods, and rebel muskets are going to open up on them from Liddell's Arkansas men. We're going to talk about Liddell here in a little while, right? And it's interesting to see how this kind of goes, this early phase of this Battle of Perryville. Gay is going to send his dismounted 2nd Michigan men forward into the woods to deal with these Arkansas guys that are in his front. Gay, his troopers in the 2nd Michigan, they're going to have repeaters. And so they're going to charge into the woods and they're going to run right into the teeth of Liddell's brigade. Now, yeah. what the Rebs will do is they'll do a classic rope-a-dope. Well, they'll fall back like they're going to retreat and they're going to lead them into a trap. So they're going to reform and they're going to wait for them and they're going to blast them as they approach, send them off, take it off. So Ebenezer Gay's attack into the woods is going to basically fail 
because they're going to get tricked, these Arkansas guys, on a Liddell. Sheridan, by early to mid-morning now, so he's going to realize, you know, that he's going to need a bigger boat to support Gay's Calvary. And, into, and he's going to find troops in the 35th Brigade under Bernard Leibolt, who is interesting, Mary, because he's a guy from Germany, who we've talked a lot about with your 11th mm -hmm. Corps people. He emigrates to, uh, to St. Louis when he was six years old. Who knows if he had a bad first grade, sixth grade picture, too? The bad haircut in sixth grade? We don't know, but we can assume he probably did. Sixth grade, and it wasn't my choice. Leibolt's men are mostly from Missouri and Illinois, right? And what they're going to do is they're going to go ahead and they're going to charge forward and scatter those Liddell's Arkansas guys and is going to force them to leave the dance floor and will basically leave Peters and Bottoms Hill to Sheridan's guys. So the mm -hmm. first phase, for the most part, it kind of, it's a dance. It goes back and forth and yep. back and forth. But at the end of the day, they are going to control, at least for that moment, we're talking eight, maybe nine o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. the Union's going to control Peters and Bottoms Hill. Yeah. And this battle too is a lot like Chickamauga in the sense that it seems to spill from room to room to room. So you have a different fight going. It's just like a barroom brawl that just keeps going and going and going and rolling along this line. But yeah, the, this area in the morning, like the Union's going to control that for a few hours, that Peters Hill. But it's interesting, but just because this whole thing, like most of these battles, is command control errors. Now, you mentioned mm -hmm. Polk earlier, right? Bragg's telling him, okay, there's these, these troops in our front. I want you to hit them. And he just kind of looks at him and nods, yeah. okay? Bragg walks out there and pulls out his F this card and ignores yeah. the entire order, right? So what he ultimately ends up doing, you kind of alluded to this. He's going to put his divisions of, of Benjamin Cheatham, William Hardy, Pat Anderson, and Simon Balver Buckner – kind of in this defensive wait-and-see position. Mm -hmm. He's basically saying, and this is on the northern slope of the of the battlefield here, he's kind of saying, listen, I don't know what the hell's in front of me. I don't know what they're doing. Let's just kind of chill and see what happens. This guy wants us to attack. We don't know who's on our front. We got hills and undulations. We don't know what's on the other side of the frigging things. Let's just kind of play it cool. That first attack over the water at Peters and Bottom Hill, at this point, is basically over, yeah. right? So if looking at phases of the battle, the Union's held that valuable water source. At this moment, they got it. Buell, you know, we mentioned before, he's sitting back at the Dorsey house, yep. kind of recouping over this, this horse. I don't know if he fell off a horse. He, he say, I think he fell off a horse is what happened. Yep. Whatever happened, yep, he, did. he, he hurt fell off a horse, right? hurt his leg. And he's sitting back at that house and he's trying to think, all right, um, he's kind of devising a plan. You know, if he had a mustache, he'd be rubbing the side of it, some sort of <laughs> evil thing, about how I'm going to attack this Braxton Bragg's 15,000-guy army, who he still thinks is not engaging yet because mm -hmm. he doesn't hear the battle yet. He decides he's going to attack around 10 o'clock in the morning on that day. He's like, he almost goes around then. But again, his troops weren't ready. They still had no. their feety pajamas on, early, <laughs> apparently, okay? And so for whatever reason, too, is the orders that he gives to his first and second corps guys, McCook and Thomas Crittenden, didn't get there till late, so they're not in position. So 10 o'clock yeah. comes, they ain't freaking ready, right? The thing is, though, as Buell, and we mentioned this just a second ago, he still doesn't know the battle's going on. No. So he thinks he's he's like that little cartoon, the little dog, this is, this is fine, the fire yeah. gone around Yeah, him. this is fine. Yeah. Right. But he doesn't under know that, that despite the fact that he's making this battle plan brilliant for, the, for that day or the next day, he's completely and utterly oblivious to the battle going on. So around noontime, 
The commander of the 1st Division of Alexander McCook's 1st Corps, a guy named Lovell Rousseau, is going to order his 17th Brigade under a poet, Mary. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. His name is Lytle. William Haynes Lytle. Okay. Now, we'll talk about him in detail here in a little while. But yeah. just, like you were saying a little while ago, we're trying to set up the, the chessboard here, right? Speaking of, we'll talk about Claiborne, too. Yeah. See what he did there? Mm-hmm. Nice. He's going to set that battle line near the bo- near a place called the HP Bottom House along a Michigan battery called Loomis's Battery. And he's kind of setting up his, his line as well. Now, Rousseau is back with Buell reporting on how he's placed his division. He's just reporting how he's done it. Lytle's men are going to sit around. They're going to be chilling. They're just going to be hanging out. Who knows what they're doing? You know, just they're sitting on, <laughs> sitting on the hill. So, you know, maybe they were kung fu fighting. Who knows what they were doing? But they were just kind of <laughs> hanging out there, right? Lytle's probably reading Rousseau, poetry to them. Rousseau is going to get reports from his scouts that rebels are moving towards his front along that Harrodsburg Road. And what he's going to do at this point, he's going to order some troops to go down to Doctor's Creek, where the water is, and go fill up their canteens. Before they do this, a couple things. The water is disgusting at this point. It is okay? covered in algae it's, and everything else. It's, and it's, there's it, reports that after the battle, men died from drinking it. There's a, there's a lot of it. A lot of stuff. We'll talk yeah. about that. So 1230, just after lunchtime, rebel artillery is going to open up on that Union line with four batteries. And that completely surprised Rousseau. He was not mm-hmm. ready for it. And what he'll do is he'll respond by bringing up the rest of Loomis's mission artillery, along with the 5th Indiana Light Artillery. So he's going to set up his artillery here. And this is going to lead to about a full hour back and forth artillery going back and forth, which doesn't freaking do anything because they, they just, no. doesn't, just there's no damage done, right? And what's Lytle doing? Lytle at this point is riding up and down the line on his horse, preparing his men for that anticipated rebel attack that mm-hmm. he thinks and knows is probably coming. Yep. He's going to set up that third Ohio in a nearby cornfield we'll talk about in a little bit with the rest of his brigade. He's going to set up that second battle line. Um, and this is happening all around 2.30 p.m. Am I getting that right? Uh, it's a little early, but same yeah. time. Yeah, but it's yeah, he's going to set them up in that line. And there's, there's stuff happening all at the same time at the Union, all along the Union line, there's stuff happening. And also at this time is when Cheatham begins his bombardment at 1230 from his position where right, he is. Right, Bra- because Bra- Bragg is sitting back at the Crawford house waiting for Polk's offensive attack yeah. that we know is not coming now. He's just sitting waiting for it. This is going to be great. Everybody listen. Yep. Never comes, right? Nope. Kind of like a Friday night when you're waiting for the <laughs> But he says, and- but the one problem too is Confederate cavalry recon had been so shitty and that they withdrew where Cheatham from with where Cheatham was the the cavalry withdraws before they can see McCook place artillery under Lieutenant Charles Parsons and his brigade of General William Alt our Terrell onto open knob, which is a prominent hill at the northern end of the battlefield. And this is happening right. as Cheatham is doing his artillery bombardment at 1230. So he's got no idea that's happening. Well, the thing is, is that, you know, we mentioned the, 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 the recon. Bragg is going to report on the Union line is extended now. He's finally yeah. starting to get some kind of reconnaissance. So this is when he moves at Cheatham's first division, to your point, into that Walker's Bend and John Wharton's cavalry. And he wants to kind of screen their movements and kind of and kind of protect them. So probably around two o'clock now, getting there on that time, Loomis's Michigan battery artillery is out of ammo. Yeah. They nothing left. Plum out, right? And this is after that hour-long artillery barrage. While Lytle's brigade, his infantry brigade, is still in position waiting for that rebel infantry attack. So the two, Cheatham's guys are going to finally attack on the rebel right, followed by Hardy and then Buckner, who at this point, Mary, they're enjoying like a three-to-one man advantage. I mean, on paper, going in, it's a huge union number disparity, but it doesn't turn out that way, no. right? The first brigade is Cheatham's division to move ahead is the first, um, is on a Daniel Don- Donaldson's Tennesseans. Yeah, he's who Fort Donaldson is named after. 
Um, and yes. he crosses the Chaplin River and he climbs the bluffs of the West Bank. And as he's going in, Cheatham is saying, give him hell, boys. And Donaldson quickly figures out he's attacking the Union Center and not the left. That's the key to the whole thing. Yeah. Is at this point, Polk is fully expecting that this line he's hitting is the left flank. And it's important because guess what? Ain't, it's right? not. He's doing and a it, full-on frontal assault right now. And what's so funny about that is you mentioned that give him hell, boys. Cheatham is yelling, give him hell, boys. Polk is there, yeah. right? And he hears him yell that. And him being the bishop won't swear. So after Cheatham yells, give him hell, boys, Polk yells, give him what Cheatham said. And he wouldn't say <laughs> yeah, hell. Which I always thought was a funny story. The heat of battle, he still won't swear. So I don't Just you know. do what Cheatham but, told you to do. Exactly. And and so the thing that Donaldson does is he's going to send out in front um, a guy named Colonel John H. Savage. Now there's a wicked name for you right there. Savage. And he races ahead of these two other regiments to get to the artillery uh-huh. of Captain John Sam- Samuel J. Harris. The thing with Savage is he hates Donaldson. And he considers Donaldson to be a drunk and he's not great militarily. He believed that Donaldson's order for him to attack Harris's battery to be a death sentence against him. And Savage was kind of like Leonidas Polk. He paid little attention to orders anyway, but he is going to go in there and he's moving west and they come under the crossfire of the 33rd Ohio Infantry, the eight guns of Parsons Artillery and Open Knob, 200 yards to the north. And then this is when Cheatham orders the brigade of General George E. Manny to go forward to deal with Parsons on Open Knob. Right. And so Parsons' guns are, at this point, they're going to be in jeopardy. That 33rd Brigade Commander William Terrell, to your point, James Jackson's 10th Division, he's going to order a bayonet charge to slow Manny down. He's going to try to yeah. slow him down and they're going to get wicked pounded, suffered greatly, took heavy casualties, and was in vain because Maney was able to take Parsons' artillery, right? Now, the thing about Maney, he was a maniac because he wouldn't stop there. He kept no. going. He, so after securing the guns, they keep they go down the reverse slope of that open knob you just mentioned and ran head into that 28th Brigade under a guy named John Starkweather, right, yep. who had set up in that cornfield we mentioned. Now, some of Starkweather's soldiers were so new They'd been in the army for less than 30 days. The That's 21st, how new they the were. The 21st Wisconsin, I think, is the one that is in the cornfield. And they're so new, mm-hmm. they don't even have a battle flag yet. Now, one of the guys who was attacking, one of the, the regiments who was attacking at this point was the 1st Tennessee. Everyone knows Sam, Private Sam Watkins, right, yeah. from the uh, the Kenbers. He was a guy who was the 1st Tennessee. He wrote that um, that book, Company H, a sideshow, yeah. the big show from Columbia, Tennessee. He had a really t- amazing quote about this p- this part of the battle I'm going to read. So I'm going to read here. And what he's saying, he, he goes, at 12 o'clock while we were marching in a cornfield, the beginning of the end had come. From one end of the line to the other seemed to be a solid sheet of blazing smoke and fire. From this moment, the battle was a mortal struggle. Two lines confronted us. We did, we did not recoil, but our line was fairly hurled back. But a leaden ball that poured into our very faces, eight color bearers were killed as they discharged their cannons. So this is heavy, heavy fighting that's going on right at this spot. Now, one of Starkweather's regiments, the 21st Wisconsin, they were one of those regiments that had less than 30 days as well. Yeah. They're in position when William Terrell, a brigade commander, runs by them yep. in full retreat yelling, the rebels are coming, the rebels are coming. The rebels are right? advancing in terrible are, I think force. Was, I, think, I think it was advancing, but it's more fun to make fun of Paul right here. But, yeah. but you can imagine them. These are 30-day paper guys just, just in line. And their brigade guys taken off. Now, the 21st is commanded by a guy named William Sweet, okay? Yeah. Now, to his credit, 
he does not run and stood and fired a volley to the oncoming rebels from Maney's brigade, right? Maney, of course, responds by firing a volley of 1,400 muskets into the faces of the 21st Wisconsin yep. that sent them running down that bent road, which is yep. that bent road. So give them credit. They were green. They stayed and fired a volley, but they ain't stupid either. I can't imagine how they felt when they, they saw Terrell running back. And by this point, Donaldson is basically done. He is going to suffer 20% casualties. Now, within that, Savage's men, uh -huh. he loses 219 of 370. And I did the math, and I believe it did it correctly. That's 59% casualties. He lost a lot of guys. And the fighting at this point, which is, which is that maelstrom, a knockdown, dragout type of battle, and it's some of the most vicious fighting in the entire American Civil War. Yeah. And it goes on. Alexander Stewart's mm -hmm. Tennessee Brigade yep. is going to jump into the battle at this point and join the attack on Starkweather. Yeah, so he'll again, fill in the gap I, where Donaldson was. Right. And that rebel wave is going to get to the crest just beyond Open Knob and was able to take that one too. So they're going forward and forward and forward. Terrell and his 33rd Union Brigade was going to try to counterattack. To their credit, he he runs, but he comes back. So he can yep. counterattack. He pull oh, oh, Howard here. He comes back there. Okay. <laughs> He's going to counterattack after, but he's after he finally stops running, and he's going to get morally wounded by an artillery shell at this point. We'll talk about him in, a, in more yep. detail later. But the Union is going to fall back to more of a defensive position this time along that Mackville Road instead of some guns on a ridge that was protected by a rock wall. So they're yep. going to kind of set up a defense. They realize what's going on. Maney and Stewart are going to try to attack that rock wall three times over a three-hour period. Yep to try to take that position, but they couldn't do it. There's a soldier who was part of that. And I have another quote. He writes, the ground was slippery with blood. Many a poor, dark-looking, powder-grimed artilleryman was laying stretched out upon the ground around us, torn and mutilated. This is a rebel soldier talking about one of those Union guys up at that rock wall with the artillery. Yeah. yeah. So what does that tell you? It means they're up there with the guns. Exactly. Soldiers, right? And it said that this part of the battle, that this assault of Maney's brigade um as you said like it's the bloodiest in the battle but the fi his final repulse is described as probably the high watermark of the confederacy in the western theater that's the quote the high watermark yeah. you know as this is going on and this is where it kind of has that chickamauga kind of thing yeah as polk's attack is on, is on full banana on the rebel right the attack is also beginning on the rebel center now right so it's kind of moving yeah. down the line so we're talking three o'clock in the afternoon mm -hmm. now Colonel Thomas Jones, Mississippi guys, and Patton Anderson's mm -hmm. division, part of Hardy's left wing, begins to move in that, into the battle, into that valley, right? In a sink, um, they, they're in, near the sinkhole, what's called well, the sinkhole. But what's great about this, though, is they, they YOLO this. They yeah. do this without orders. They just, they do it on that their own. That happens a lot in this battle. Like, it seems like, you know, I'm reading the names of, like, I got to, when I was researching this, I got to know the names of a lot more colonels than I usually do. And I think mm -hmm. that's because how distant, literally and figuratively, Buell is from this battle. But it seems like the soldiers are, are having to take the things under their own and be like, okay, this is what we need to do because we're not getting mm -hmm. any orders and they're they're coming right at us. And, you know, in some instances, that is what happens at Battle of Chickamauga as well, because you have the, the brigades are separated from their division commanders and all that, right? So similar things are happening here too. But I really found like, you know, you hear the names of a lot more colonels in this making the decision. You know what they do? Mary, they march right into the teeth here. They do. They're going to march right straight into fire from those 12 guns on the ridge line and a bunch of musket fire by Leonard Harris's 9th Brigade that you mentioned earlier. So yeah. they're going to go right into it. There's going to be an artillery duel that's going to go on between the 5th Indiana and Charles Lumsden's Alabama guns. But again, it does no real damage to either side, but Jones' brigade does get, does get driven yeah. back. So they're going to try yeah. and they're going to fall back. 
So now you're talking about four o'clock now, right? Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about this is not only do you have acoustic shadows happening, but you have an optical mm -hmm. illusion happening here. So when Captain Charles Lumsden's Alabama Light Artillery goes to return fire, they can't line things up because of an optical illusion. The two ridges looked exactly the same, so they couldn't get the appropriate range on the weapons. So therefore, that's why it didn't really do anything. So this geography is really playing in heavily into how this battle is turning. No, I mean, you can have all the, the French ordnance glasses all you want and those the type mm -hmm. of things to, to help you with your artillery. But if, if, if you're getting that weird eyeball effect thing from just the visual stuff, it, it's just pretty tough to do. And around four o'clock, Thomas Jones' troops are going to get replaced by John C. Brown, guys from Florida and Mississippi for the most part. Pretty much that very moment when the Union artillery was kind of taking a break to cool the guns off. So they kind of hit the timing just right, but they had no success either. They kind of got push back you keep sliding down the line right with this yep. as you go down the line of that rebel right around the same time probably about 3 4 o'clock around the same time you have alexander's mccook's now corner what's interesting about this battle for the most part for them you don't want to say for the most part but it's really mccook's corps against three confederate divisions yeah, kind of mccook's right? is the, the worst i think right and so mccook's first union corps is parked on a ridge near the house of a place called Squire Henry Bottom, right? Yep. Now, on McCook's right flank is where Lytle is. That 17th Brigade is placed at that place at the, at the bottom house. That's where that's where he is, I mentioned earlier. Lytle had sent, like I said earlier, Lytle had sent some of his guys down by the creek. That's what they say in the south there. Yep. It's creek. We call okay. them cricks here, too. Down at the creek. It's basically a ravine at Doctor's Creek to fill in those canteens. It's going to be the 42nd Indiana under a guy named Gerard Jones, right? Mm -hmm. While they're down there, they're filling up their green, crappy canteens with no, this shitty you. water. No, thank you. They're going to start to take fire from the 14th Battalion of the Louisiana Sharpshooters and a guy named Major John Stone Cold Austin. I was just John Austin. <laughs> be amazing just, oh my god it's a, yeah, okay, there's a wrestling reference um, for our wrestling fans out there is, is that john austin's theme music <laughs> that, that's what I, that's probably what i'm probably saying but they're down there filling up their water and they're starting to take shots these pot shots mm -hmm. from these sharpshooters under austin right these louisiana guys the sound of the fire pop 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 is gonna just like the walking dead it's gonna attract right yep and what who does that attract it attracts bushrod johnson the commander of the third brigade under buckner yep his division to say something's going on at that area. So we got to head down there. So they're going to advance to that bottom house area from the Chatham House Hill. They're going to come down to an area. Now, the Rebs are going to move. They're going to cross Stonewall after Stonewall. They're going to get there. They're going to start raining artillery on that Union position, right? Mm -hmm. There was a story about a barn. I think it was a barn. Your barn yep. or a farmhouse. It yep, was right barn. near there. Yep. Where, where the 3rd Ohio and the 15th Kentucky guys who were injured were resting, right? Yep. The barn caught fire. And they all burned to death, which is a really crappy story. But it's just one of those things. The 3rd Ohio at this point and the 15th Kentucky are going to ultimately go in. The 3rd Ohio is going to fall back. The 15th Kentucky is going to yep. go in is how it's going to go. The 15th Kentucky is under a guy named Colonel Curran Pope. While this is all going out, this is when Patrick Claiborne's guys start coming. What was interesting about Claiborne, Mary, is a couple of things. One, a lot of his guys had blue jackets on because they stole them yep. from Union yep. soldiers. They had the jackets and the pants on that they'd taken from Richmond. And that's really going to uh, not help them in a little while when they go into battle. But the other thing, too, I just thought of is you have men starting to trade off now. You know, you have this 15th Kentucky coming in, trading off for the guys that were there before. But you have Claiborne com coming into this uh, battle, and he's going to have to relieve johnson's men because johnson and claiborne have a little bit of a chat when they get on the battlefield and johnson's like yeah dude i'm running out of ammo can you continue well all i could think about with these blue jacket claiborne guys these guys going in yeah 
like all the conveyors pointing at them going, that's the red shirted guys from Star Trek. They're going in right yep, now. Yeah, exactly. That, that's kind of exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly what it was. Cause you had to think, cause they were taking fire from both sides at this yeah. point. But <laughs> think about it. So Claiborne, he's going to ride in. And while he's on, moving up and on that slope, he's, his horse is going to get hit. His horse, Dixie. Yeah. By an artillery shell, by all accounts, kind of blew the horse up, right? Must yep. have been a direct shot. And this is going to injure him as well. He's going to get hit in the ankle by some sort of artillery piece. It's going to hurt him. Not sure if it affected his chess playing game, Mary, admittedly. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't think um, it did. <laughs> but Claiborne's men are going to, they're going to be marching up that slope towards that 15th Kentucky now, who's replacing third Ohio. Yeah. And what, what was, you mentioned Bushrod a second ago, mm-hmm. it was a great story about this battle. Bushrod's guys are there. Claiburn, Kool-Aid mans it, goes right past them. Oh, he does. Get he, out of the friggin' yeah, way. Yeah, he does. Right? The way he sets them up. So what he does is he's, he puts his like skirmishers out in front and he puts his other men like, you know, so like maybe 10 or so paces behind because he sees how the geography is. He recognizes that where the Federals are, they're not going to be able to fire on them till a certain point. As the skirmishers crest over this hill, the Union opens fire on them and there's the casualties are heavy. But then right after that, this is when Claiborne and his men basically Kool-Aid man it in there. As the Union are loading their rifles, the Confederates, Claiborne's men, just fire a volley at them of less than 100 yards, and then they just, they rush in. And Hardy would write of this part of the battle, he would say of Claiborne, that it was irresistible and drove the enemy in wild disorder from a position nearly a mile to the rear. And this is a funny quote I found from one of Claiborne's men, said... As their line broke, we had them and gave it to them in the back. It was a hot evening and the grass being dry. It caught fire and the flames Ooh. spreading to a barn. <laughs> Just to our right. So they're Savannah. You- they're, they're, they're giving the Savannah to uh, the, you know the Union what's, what's here. It's funny to, to digress real quick. Do you know that after this battle, that night of the 8th, there was that they have, we'll talk about the Council of War that Brad yeah. has. You know, Bushra, how pissed off he was at Claiborne from pushing past him. There was a confrontation. It was like 19th yeah. century road rage. You cut me off. Yeah, he was so pissed at Claiborne for basically pushing past his guys and going right through them, which I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. In that oh conversation. yeah, well, then imagine. Oh, and then apparently after that, I think it was Claiborne who said, "We're not going to speak of this anymore." Yeah, he said, "Not enough of this." <laughs> he was like, you know? this. <laughs> At this point, Claiborne's going to be going in. They're marching up that slope towards the 15th Kentucky, who been who got some support now from three companies from yeah. from all these Ohio guys, Mary. Now, on the left was the 2nd Brigade of Louisiana men under Daniel Adams, right? Now, the Union troops are, at this point, they'd be forced to retreat while William Lytle continues to rally his troops. And this is when he's, we talked about this before, but it was around now he's going to get hit in the head with something. Artillery, he's going to get nicked. He's going to be left for dead by his troops, right? Yeah. And he'll be captured, befriended by Bushrod Johnson, would care for him. He'd arrange for an early parole back to the Union yeah. Army right after the battle. They'd see each other again in Chickamauga under less friendly terms, they would. Much but less. but this is we I would refer to you, Mary, to our episode of William Haynes Lytle for further details about this part. Yes. Because where he and Bushra, wants, Bushrod hang out in their feeny no, pajamas for a while. They, they were. So <laughs> j- just south of this, while this is all rolling, so it's all kind of rolling southwest on this battle line, is what yeah. it is. Phil Sheridan's second division in Gilbert's Corps was just hanging out near the Peters Hill. Even though they were close to that bottom house and could clearly see and hear what was going on with Lytle, they did not come to his assistance because yeah. he was ordered by Gilbert not to bring on a general engagement. And he'd, he'd occasionally fire a few shells, but that's all he would do. Now, no one Sheridan like you do. Can you imagine how hard that must have been for him to oh, sit Oh, for him to nothing? sit still? Yeah, this is one of those things that's kind of an anomaly 
and who Sheridan is because he's known as this really aggressive commander, especially near the end of the Civil War. But here you have him just like, okay, I'll follow orders. Oh, wait, I just need to fire a few. He had to. He must have been like just bouncing off the walls and he's told he can't do it. He had yeah. orders. But one thing real quick before we exit the 15th Kentucky, we got to talk about uh, Colonel Pope. We talked real quick about this mm-hmm. water. So he gets wounded in this battle, right? Yeah. With, against Claiborne's guys. He's going to survive it. But you know what happens to him? Mm. He's drinking that water. Yeah. You know what happens? He gets typhoid yeah. because of the water, the shitty water. He dies and he's going to die on the 6th of November, 1862, as many soldiers do. And this, again, because of desperation of thirst, because of the heat, they're forced to drink this crap, kind of like the stuff you drink, right? You know, that Molson X crap. <laughs> Ew, and, and you have a lot You have a lot of these people, a lot of these soldiers. And this is a very understudied, I don't say understudied, but under thought about part of this battle you think about the battles they got canister fire artillery mm-hmm. and musketry these poor guys are thirsty as hell drinking this crap pond scum water and guys like colonel pope is going to die of typhoid because yeah. of it it's just one of those things you know but well that's something that happens throughout the civil war you hear it even you know around the time of the battle of shiloh men getting typhoid and dying because they're drinking this really shitty water right i can't even imagine i don't know why i'm thinking of typhoid mary right now but that's <laughs> you know so at four o'clock in the afternoon with Mary, you know who finally gets into the battle is all Phil Sheridan. He gets mm-hmm. dragged into the battle. He finally does yeah. through a, a brigade of rebels under Samuel Powell is going to line up on Claiborne's left, which is basically in Claiborne's front. And he's going to get orders to move along toward a road called the Springfield Pike to a Union battery that has been causing them problems under a guy named Henry Hescock. Yeah. Have fun with that one, Barry. I'm glad so, you pronounced Brad- that one and not me. All right. So, so Bragg wants that battery taken out. He's just, it's causing him a lot of problems, take it out. But he assumes those guns are just by themselves. Yeah, they're not the entire guns, third corps. He doesn't just realize a, they're entire just third lemonade, corps. lemonade stand all by itself and nobody around. <laughs> That's kind of what they're thinking, right? And they're not supported by infantry. And guess what? Oops, they were, right? Yeah. It's, it's actually attached to Gilbert's third corps and it had full support. So Powell's Rebs go in with just three regiments, mm-hmm. three, right? And they go straight to the teeth of, of Sheridan's waiting division, who slapped them around pretty quickly. That was pretty easy. The thing about this, Mary, is for whatever reason, these three regiments under Powell, right, they're going to retreat. Sheridan doesn't counterattack. No. For whatever had, reason, he, he doesn't. Hesitates. This is not his best day here at all. No. And, and he says he's waiting for support from, uh, from William Carlin's 31st Brigade and Robert Mitchell's 9th Division, who finally did come and chase Powell's retreating regiment. So you got... Robert Mitchell, his ninth division is going to show up and they're, they're going to be the ones who are going to chase these three regiments. This is pretty good because Carlin's brigades are going to chase Powell, basically chariots of fire style, Yeah, right? They're going to chase him all the way back into Perryville. They, they ran so fast. I cannot believe Howard was not involved. That's how fast <laughs> they were running. Nike but, was their sponsor a, though, which is the official sponsor but, of the 11th. Corps. But a soldier in the 15th Wisconsin, he wrote about this pursuit. He wrote, it was like running a marathon. And then we had, and we, and we were in pursuit at times. We were so close. I was once able to slap a rebel in the rear. Ooh, Ooh there's a lot exactly. of rear so, action in this battle. There was, definitely was. But that's how, how, they, how they were. So the primary part of the battle that most people study is the, is the final leg of this, which is the Alexander McCook stuff at the Wrestle House, right? Yeah. So by late afternoon, the Rebs are going to, what they're going to try to do is they're going to attack both flanks of Alexander McCook's and they're going to use that pincer to double envelopment thing. Yep. They're going to hit their flanks. And they're going to push them back and they want to drive McCook's men back to an intersection where these where a road called the Benton Road and the Mackville Road meet at a place called Dixville Crossroads. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Again, great name. Ideally, they'd be able to separate them from the rest of Buell's army to kind of separate them and just defeat them right there. Now, Bragg's first part of this attack was to attack a brigade in James Jackson's 10th Division under George Webster. Yeah. And I know there's a story you want to tell about these three guys. Yeah. So these three guys, so Jackson, Webster, and Terrell get together the night before and they're all like, okay, what are the odds? So they're, you know, working out the math by what, what are the chances that they could all be killed or one of them killed or whatever. And they determine just from the numbers and whatever the fuck their kind of calculations they're doing that it's really, really low. All three of them are going to die in this battle. Jackson first, followed mm-hmm. by Terrell, followed by Webster. Webster's the final senior loss in this 10th division. But they all get taken out after being like, nope, the odds are really in our favor that we're not going to die in this battle. Yeah, they're all sitting on the campfire like a bar talk. Just calm. Yeah. Hey, what, what do you think? It's like, just just imagine that the conversation these guys have, you know. And, and you know, when the battle does happen the next day, this had not happened the night before, Bragg's assault was by Simon Baldwin Buckner's 3rd Division under that 3rd Brigade under the aforementioned Sterling A.M. Wood, right? Now, during this assault, Wood will rise to the occasion, Mary. And this, <laughs> is, what, this, is, what, you know, this is what George Webster is going to be killed, as does Division Commander James Jackson and William Terrell. They're all going to get mortally wounded yep. um, uh, and that's how it's. I, th- I think Webster gets killed. The other two get mortally wounded. Yeah, yeah, because um, Terrell dies around two a.m. And I think Jackson mm-hmm. might be one of the higher-ranking officers killed at Perryville. Yeah, but Wood is going to take a beating at the hands Ooh. of Webster's infantry. <laughs> for, God, for, they're going to anyway. Watch I say around you, but they're, they're going to get slapped around and from that Union battery that's situated near Benton Road. So they're trying to pinch them and drive them in, but they're still dealing with this artillery. So. Wood's going to renew his attack, and this time he was able to. God, I'm afraid to say this. He's going to penetrate the line, okay? And he's going to he's going to drive Webster's men back to that Ben Ben and Macville Road, right? Now, eventually, Wood is going to fall back as another brigade arrives. This is the brigade of Saint John Liddell's brigade, who was fighting again. Here they are again on the other part of the battlefield. Interesting thing about Liddell, Mayor. I don't know if you studied him, but Saint John Richardson Liddell's an interesting fellow from a wealthy Louisiana family. He um, has a very epic name. He does. But you know what he was? He was a very outspoken supporter of, guess what? Emancipation of the slaves in the Confederacy. And he felt that if he if they freed the slaves, it would open the door to foreign intervention on the South's behalf. He was an outspoken, big mouth, would not stop talking type of guy, right? But he was also, he unlike Patrick Claiborne, mm-hmm. who got blackballed for this, yep. he was a former classmate of, guess who? Jefferson Davis, ah. right? So he was kind so of in the why, pocket, yeah. right? And so it kept him in the Reds' graces. Whenever he was offered a promotion, Liddell turned it down every time. Nope, don't want wow. it. You know, he was a motivated fella, right? But he was—he had a lot of money. He was able to raise and support his own brigade. And he's happy with it and just kept it. He hated, hated Judah Benjamin with a passion. I don't know if it was Asia Booth related. We don't know, <laughs> okay? But after the war, he wrote, he wrote a set of memoirs which bashed all of them. Bash Braxton Bragg. He blamed Bragg for all the subordinates' failures. He was that guy. Wow. He just whatever. The other thing about him, you heard of Hatfields and the McCoys? Yeah. His family was involved in one called the Liddell Jones feud. There was a feud they had with some family. That uh, just doesn't with, sound uh, as good, though. It doesn't. It doesn't. So after the war in 1870, this thing's been going on for a while. Liddell is going to be on a boat in New Orleans. And who's going to get on the boat but Charles Jones and his sons? Guess what happens? He kills him. So Liddell gets killed on a boat in 1870 in New Orleans because of a family feud 
by Charles Jones and his sons. It's just one of those stupid yeah, stories. Yeah, no, that's cool, though. That's what's interesting about studying you know? this is you find out about all this background that's going on, you know? Oh, yeah. So getting, getting back to the battle, Mary. <laughs> so McCook is going to ask Sheridan at this point. He's going to see what's going on. He's going to ask Sheridan to send support on his right flank. He's like, like, I'm getting my right flank is getting driven in. Can you help me out? He also sends an aide to Charles Gilbert, the Corps commander, to get help from this, his Third Corps as well. Because now this is really going now, right? Gilbert, in true passing the buck form, is going to refer a staff officer to go to Buell for his headquarters yep. for this request, which is about five miles away from the battlefield, that Dorsey house. The staff officer won't get there for about an hour later. So Buell is sitting at his headquarters. Okay, God knows what he's doing. He gets the request. And at this moment, he finally says, shit, there's a battle going on? This is when he <laughs> realizes like this is going on. Right? And so he blamed the acoustic shadow, which is probably true. Yep. But I can only imagine what it must have been like when he had his want to get away moment yep. when he realized this battle was going on and he missed the whole thing. But what this acoustic shadow did with Buell not knowing, the Union Army went into this battle, you know, with 55,000 guys. Yeah. There were 40, there was 35 to 40,000 soldiers who were not put in this battle no. because Buell didn't know there was a battle. Even though Bragg was outnumbered 55,000 to about 15,000, the numbers were almost the same because Buell didn't know there was a battle and didn't send everybody in. Could you imagine the cutscenes or the, the scenes in a movie about Perryville where you have one scene where like this, this bloody battle is happening and then it cuts to Buell and he's drinking like, he's sipping like a drink out of a pineapple in a lounge chair all, all of the <laughs> and there's birds that, singing that. around him and he can't hear shit. All I can picture, you know, is that movie, The Usual Suspects, you know, when you're yeah. sitting there, you realize what's going on. What? Right? Yeah. But so he finally figures it out. And this is the part that blows my mind. He finally goes, oh, shit. Okay. I'll send you. I'll send you people. Okay. But he only sends two brigades. Yep. From so Shops. now he knows what's going So he's going to send Albion Schmops. What the hell's his name? His shop's name in, right? Yeah. That first division um, from under Gilbert. He's going to send him in. And even though he knows the house is completely on fire, the killer is in the house, he yep. knows. He sits there and he throws a, he shoots a water gun at the fire. That's what he does. Yep. I think what this shows, though, is that the not the complete mass confusion that Don Carlos Buell had at this moment. I don't think he knew what was going on. He had no concept of what was going on. He had no idea the severity of this battle. And more importantly, he had no idea what was going on in his union lines, right? So... At this point, the battle's a complete mess. There's smoke covering the, most of the field. And this is when my one of my all-time favorite stories, the Civil War, comes up. I was just right around say. now. Okay, so yeah. this is all going on. During this confusion, Leonidas Polk, okay, the uh, the fighting bishop, mm -hmm. he's going to almost get his ass caught. And I, I love yep. this story. They're near the Russell House at Alex McCook's headquarters. They're right there, and there's a set of woods. Liddell's men... They're firing into a wood line at these unseen soldiers, right? And someone from the woods, who must be brilliant, just yells, for God's sake, stop shooting. You're firing upon your friends. Yeah. And Polk, for whatever freaking reason, is intrigued by this. So he stops the fire and he decides to personally ride to the woods to see who it is. He stumbles into the 22nd Indiana under Colonel Squire Ishan Keith. Now, the 22nd was pretending to be Rebs because, my guess, they don't like being shot at. So that's probably yeah. why they did it, right? So Polk rides up. He actually meets Keith. He, meet, he actually runs into a face-to-face. And Polk says to Colonel Heath, you know, who are you guys? He goes, well, we're at the 22nd Indiana. So Keith responds back to him, who are you? 
He responds back, you'll soon find out, right? <laughs> Who knows if that's true, but that's what yeah. Polk said. It probably did. But Polk had a blue like blouse or overcoat on, yeah. so you couldn't really tell. Polk realizes, okay, I'm screwed here, right? So what does he do? He realizes his mistake. He's going to ride up and down the line of the 22nd Indiana, giving out orders. <laughs> Stop firing. Move here. Move there. And he's riding up and down the line until finally he pulls his Irish goodbye and sneaks out and heads <laughs> back to the line. But I just find that fascinating that he was not only – he didn't run away. And I hate to say it, but, you know, I mean, many a guy, you know, I can think of one guy specifically over at Chantilly who. who yeah, I was just thinking poor Carney. He, um, you know, Phil Carney probably ooh, that did not work out well for him. Running right, yeah. But he literally is pretending to be an officer, yeah. and because he's wearing a blue blouse thing, no one questions him. And I love the fact he's giving out orders: stop shooting, stop shooting. And he finally gets back to the line. He gets back to the line. Liddell says, who are those guys in the woods? He says, every mother's son in those woods is a Yankee. That's the quote <laughs> he said, right? And so Liddell's guys are firing into the woods, and they beat the hell out of them. The 22nd Indiana takes 65% casualties from these volleys from what happened from Liddell, including Commander Isham Keith, who was killed here. Mm-hmm. These Liddell guys fire into the woods and they completely push out these guys. For whatever reason, Polk did not pursue. After he he beats these guys in the woods, he steps back. I have to think he lit up a cigarette and just, yep. just needed to calm his nerves because he almost got caught. He was like Sylvester the Cat in that one cartoon where he's got the coffee and the cigarettes going. That's probably yeah. what he was like for the but next I, few days. But I think, I think he was probably shook up pretty hard uh-huh. by this. Because he doesn't attack, he decides to halt the attack and pull back at this point, even though he's got him. Yeah. And I have to think he realized that that pucker effect moment he had. I think for the most part, he realized that okay, I got lucky here. I'm gonna, yes. I'm gonna stop this. After this, Bragg and his army of the Mississippi, despite being comp- uh, being outmanned, found themselves in control of much of the fields. They stuck their hand in their pocket from last year's jacket and pulled out a twenty dollar bill. Look what I found. They <laughs> they they realized that they fell upon this. So whether it be and who knows whether it be the casualty numbers, I have to think though, it was the fact that Thomas Crittenden's second brigade, second corps is still looming out there. Because you remember Buell had held many of these guys back. I think at this point Bragg decides, you know what, enough is enough. I think I said we came what we came to do. And he decides that he's going to withdraw from the battlefield. Even after driving Buell back and having him on the run, he pumps the brakes and says, the hell with this. This this, this is stupid. So 9 o'clock, when Bushrod has his little issue with Claiborne right around here, Bragg is going to meet with his generals at the headquarters at the Crawford House. And he's going to give an exodus, a mass exodus of the dance floor, he says. That's exactly literally what he called it. And he says, I want, I want everyone out of here by yep. midnight. We're going to head back to Tennessee. He's and they leave, leave 900 people. wounded behind. Yeah. I was going to say a lot, lot of thousand people. You read my yep. mind, Mary. Good job. So what he wants to do is his plan was to reunite his army back in Harrodsburg. And he just, he pretty much determines at this point that, you know what? We can't hold Kentucky. This is stupid. We didn't get the recruits we thought we were going to get. We fought. You know, we got pounded. You know, we had a strategic victory. We drove Buell off the field, but we cannot hold this. So he determines on his own, after a months of what we talked about, this attack into Kentucky, this invasion of Richmond and all the stuff we talked about, he decides this Confederacy cannot take Kentucky. So he's going to leave Kentucky. He's going to go back to Tennessee, literally handing the Commonwealth Missouri football coach yeah. of Kentucky back to them. And so they, they fought for months politically and military, militarily. He gives it all back to Lincoln, which yeah. is a mind numbing situation for Braxton Bragg. Yeah. And then he gets called to Richmond to go to the principal's office. 
with Jefferson Davis, but because they're friends, he gets a pass. Can you imagine the people in Richmond spitting up their grits when they heard this? When they find out what's going on. So he goes back to Richmond and he gets called back. Davis wants Bragg. What the friggin' hell? Wants answer for what he did. He's also hearing these stories now of Bragg's subordinates bitching about him. We talk about him a lot with like Chattanooga, right? Yeah. This and is where it really it, it starts here. Like Claiborne's men apparently called him cowardly because Bragg didn't give them any credit for what they did. And, and Claiborne's men had driven the Federals furthest from the field more than any others had that day all because Claiborne decides to Kool-Aid man it in Bragg's defense Mary okay if he stayed I have to think Buell would have brought up Crittenden second corps and the rest of those 40,000 guys to pull in and probably drive them don't forget too the army of the Mississippi had 15 16,000 guys you know they did lose about 3,300 here right so he probably saw the writing on the wall that maybe would be like a Shiloh situation. We won this, but we're going to get killed the next day. So that's Mm -hmm. probably why he did it. But I'm surprised he pulled all the way back. Many of Davis's cabinet predictably wanted Bragg fired, run on a rail, but Davis doesn't do it. And what Bragg is going to do is he's going to leave Richmond. He's going to pull his army to a place called Murfreesboro, Tennessee. He's going to rest and train his guys again, where eventually he'll be tested again a few months later at the Battle of Stones River in December. So he's going to ultimately, I think he felt he did what he thought was right. I think he was looking a little bit forward, but I think he overreacted by throwing the baby out with the bathwater here by instead of just backing off and reforming maybe to Versailles where he wanted to fight, he left completely. Um, Buell did not endear himself either to this battle. He he's going to return to Nashville instead yeah. of pursuing Bragg. So he doesn't do anything. He either. does kind of he's a got, half-ass pursuit, but it's well, he he just he's just there. And, you know, pillow fights him a little bit. Yeah, and I think this and I think this was we mentioned before when we talked about the lead up to this. I think this was a well, it definitely was. It was a final straw for Linky with Buell. Absolutely, he's sick was. of the slow, deliberate shit. He's going to create the Department of the Cumberland, which will later be called the Army of the Cumberland. You're going to take Buell's Army of the Ohio and put it within that command as the 14th Corps under William Rosecrans, right? You're going to end up in a situation where really neither of these guys endeared themselves. Why Bragg left the state is one of those things. Why Buell did not pursue him and beat that Army of the Tennessee at that moment is another mystery. Yeah. The thing about it, though, is, you know, we talk about this, the casualty numbers. The Union had 4,000 casualties. Mm-hmm. The Confederacy had 3,300. On paper, it doesn't sound like a very big battle. It really doesn't. But when you think about the percentages, and I mentioned this, I think, on Twitter, 20.2% casualties combined on both sides, right? This is more than Antietam, which is 20.1, more than Franklin, which was 16, more than Chancellorsville, which is about 16. And it was a situation where it was just a vicious battle. Sam Watkins, again, mm-hmm. mentioned him, Company H, right? I'm going to read this quote. He writes, after the battle was over, John T. Tucker, Scott Stevens, A.S. Horsley, and I detailed to bring out our wounded that night and helped bring out many poor dying comrades, Joe Thompson, Billy Pond, Byron Richardson, the two Allen boys, brothers killed side by side, and Colonel Patterson was killed standing right next to me. I saw W.J. Whitbourne, then a boy of 15 years old, fall, shot through the neck and collarbone. He fell apparently dead when I saw him all at once jump up, grab his gun, and commence loading and firing. And hearing him say, damn him, I'll fight him as long as I live. So this guy's dying, literally, and he's still trying oh to fight. Oh, my God. He writes, we brought off Captain Loot Irvine. Loot was shot to the lungs, was vomiting blood all the while, and begging us to lay him down and let him die. 
but Lute is living yet. Also, Lieutenant Woolridge, with both eyes shot out, I found him rambling, incoherent in a briar patch. I cannot tell the one half or even remember of this late date the scenes of blood and suffering that I witnessed on the battlefield at Perryville. If you read his com- his Company H diary, yeah. he says, you know, Perryville is the most vicious thing he was ever a part of. He was everywhere. Yeah. And I think when you look at the casualty numbers, you know, 20.2% out of, you know, 36,000 engaged and about 7,800 casualties, it's one that deserves to be studied a lot more. Because yeah. that huge ramifications, especially when Kentucky left, and that that was that was a game changing situation. It really, really was. That is not really studied, not really, not really. No, appreciated. and I mean, and you need to study it to to understand it. Like just the three episodes that we've covered about it um, have really made me understand Kentucky a lot better, and just how much it must have been in Lincoln's head, how important it was to hold on to. But you know, regarding Braxton Bragg leaving, I wonder if he's got the ghost of Shiloh in his head, and he saw what happened to Beauregard. You know, and he's like, shit, is that what's going to happen to me? What happens to happen to Beauregard getting called to the principal's office and getting fired? But I think he, you know, didn't want to risk it that what had happened at Shiloh again, because Bragg was at Shiloh as well. And, you know, a lot of his subordinates are not happy with this decision that they want it to stay. I mentioned Claiborne's men call, you know, they're going behind Bragg's back and they're saying he's a coward and stuff. But the other thing here, too, is Buell. I don't know why I thought of this, but, you know, say what you will about Joseph Hooker at Chancellorsville, but Joseph Hooker was concussed uh-huh. at Chancellorsville. I think the pinwheel here needs to pass to Buell <laughs> because, like, he's fully conscious and he's getting reports and he's like, nah, there's not a battle. So I think we need to let Buell hold the pinwheel for a while. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I think when you're looking at this battle, I think, you know, um, he clearly, you know, and you know what, though, he they swear by the acoustic shadows, there's all kinds of hills, yeah. undulations that roll through there. I mean, you can see how, but you have to wonder when he got that messenger, right? Yeah, why you know, he didn't. Why he did, how he reacted to that. So if you're looking at MVPs of this battle, it's an, Alexander McCook is probably the guy. Yep. I mean, I think realistically speaking, it and it's tough to say on the Confederate side, I would give it to Leonidas Polk for just getting out of that situation. Well, myself. that was amazing. It, between... Between Polk and, and Claiborne just Kool-Aid manning it. like, But then because he Kool-Aid mans it, he eventually has his uh, flanks exposed, right? So he's open up to fire from the Union, start firing at him when he does that. And then Bushrod, of course, gets pissed off at him for what he does, right? Yeah, and that, that's, that, that's, you talk about these guys, these, these men in battles and these alpha dog types. You can imagine the conversations that went on with this and behind the behind the scenes stuff, I think. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at the Battle of Perryville, you have to look at the whole Kentucky campaign, and this is a culmination of all those things we talk about, yeah. including Donaldson and Henry, Columbus, obviously Richmond, all the ones that took place in that theater, because it all led to this culmination of this bloodletting, this battle, this massacre that was the Battle of Perryville. So yeah. I think it's um I think doing this the way we did it is the, probably the best way to do it because I think mm-hmm. it sets it up basically pretty well. And I think, um, and I think it's one that I think I think is one that really should be. I don't want to say study more because a lot of people study it. I don't think people appreciate it. What you see happening here at Perryville is not just you know a battle with you know military strategy, whatever. You see the emotions of the men, right? Because I think in real time they are going to know how important Kentucky is. They are going to know. Was about this battle? We don't know if it'd be Kentucky Fried Chicken, Mary. <laughs> exactly. You think about what's happening there. The Union manages to maintain control over Kentucky for the rest of the Civil War. And Antietam and Perryville together are two huge turning points in the Civil War. I know a lot of people say Antietam, but after studying Perryville, I'm starting to rank it right next to Antietam 
for, for turning points that both needed to happen. If they'd lost Perryville, who knows what would have happened with the emancipation? I mean, I it probably would have still went through, but you know, what's that going to do for Northern morale if the Confederates gain control in Kentucky, right? Like it's just, it's one of those things that when you study it, you realize what an important piece of the puzzle it is when it comes to the Civil War and that you need to look at it as much as we look at something like Antietam, I think. We do. So what's coming up next, Mary? What's next? So next we are doing Cedar Creek. Uh, We are not having our Facebook Live this Saturday because we both have some other stuff going on. So we unfortunately are taking the weekend off from from doing the Facebook Live. But we will be back with you on the 23rd where we will be talking Perryville and Cedar Creek on that Facebook Live. And then the next episode we have after that is Jay Price. Our friend Jen is going to be joining us to talk Halloween. And just another little housekeeping thing. We will be having our roundtable on the fourth Wednesday of this month, just because we both have some stuff going on next uh, Wednesday, the 20th. So it will be on the 27th. So if you've never attended before, just be via Zoom. We start at six o'clock and we go till whenever we start wrapping up kind of thing and no topic. Mm-hmm. We just get together, nerd out about the Civil War. And if you've never attended before, just info at CivilWarBreakfastClub.com and we will send you an invite. And that's going to be Wednesday October 27th at 6 p.m. Well, I think we can jump off here and head off in the, yep. the, the wild blue yonder. So, Mary, again, this is a good time. Again, the pleasure, again, is always all yours. And I think we can look forward to moving on to the next exciting thing. So all I have to say to you, Mary, is go Red Sox. we got some exciting stuff going on this weekend, so we'll have a lot of fun yep. with that. So yeah, any final Reds. words from you, that, from you, Fincheroo? <laughs> go Red Sox. Go Pats. Go, everybody. Have a yep. safe weekend. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Anyway, so, hey. Have a great weekend, everybody. Forward to seeing you, as we always say, on the other side. Okay, see you all later. Go Sox! Bye.